So today, for our last lecture, we're going to talk about existentialism, specifically Sartre's essay, The Humanism of Existentialism. And this is an idea in a philosophy that I suspect actually sounds really familiar. Um, I know a lot of my students have already read uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger. Um, many have run into Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus at one point or another. Um, some of them have read some of Sartre's work, like No Exit. Um, but also, just existentialism is very much the philosophy that is at home with us now. Um, a lot of contemporary filmmakers and contemporary writers very much express their own ideas of existentialism through their, through their work. Um, like the filmmaker Joss Whedon, for example, the guy who did the, the first two Avengers movies, who did Firefly and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Dollhouse and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, he is pretty obviously an existentialist in his various works. Um, and you could say the same about, say, Dan Harmon and Rick and Morty and Community um, or a variety of other filmmakers and, and artists nowadays. Um, but we also use the term kind of vaguely, um, like many sort of take existentialism to be just, you know, any sort of deep rumination about, about existence or like the human condition. Um, so, you know, a lot of people sort of like talk about existential crises as though this, it's just this wide range of sort of like, you know, looking at the world and being overcome by despair or frustration or anger um and that's not entirely accurate um so i want to keep this lecture fairly short if i can because i know at this point everybody's got a lot on their plates right now what with other classes and the responsibilities for this class um and i know that we've got the final exam coming up and other big stuff like that um, and I suspect you will be spending more than your fair share of time reviewing and going over a lot of the material for the class, um, which as we get prepared for the final, you should definitely like, let me know if you have any questions or if you have any concerns. Um, in general, the final exam is divided into two sections, the objective portion, which has most of our questions, and then the, uh, the essay, which again you'll get the you'll get the questions beforehand so you'll be able to see and prepare for it but i'll also be looking for deeper analysis um but all that to say i do want to talk about existentialism um i want to talk about it both in the sense that sartre is presenting it here as this sort of like variety of humanism but i also want to talk about it in terms of what it is not um, like what we frequently sort of like place under the mantle of existentialism that really doesn't belong there. Um, things like nihilism, things like relativism. Um, so with that in mind, um, let's start by sort of like carrying over um, what we took from our last lecture on Nietzsche. So what Sartre is doing in his essay on the humanism of existentialism existentialism is in a lot of ways an outgrowth of what Nietzsche is talking about in the Twilight of the Idols and his other work. Um, I focused especially on his discussion of the eternal recurrence, this idea that like everyone has to repeat their lives over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Are you happy with that? Are you happy with the decisions that you've made? Are you happy with who you have become based on the 
on what you have done and the choices that you've made? Are you content knowing that this day will be repeated an infinite number of times in the future? And if not, why not? What are you doing wrong? What is, what is it about your life that makes you unhappy and why are you still doing it if that's the case? Um, to some degree, Nietzsche was a proto-existentialist in his way. Um, like many philosophers have sort of seen the first, like, the first marks and the first impulses of existentialism um, in 19th century philosophers like Nietzsche, like Kierkegaard, and like Dostoevsky. Um, and you'll notice that even Sartre points to several of these writers. Like, he points to Dostoevsky as uh, his, his idea in uh, the Brothers Karamazov that if God did not exist, then all is permitted. Like, he points out to that as the foundational tenet of existential philosophy, which I find kind of amusing because Dostoevsky was not at all suggesting that that was the case. Like, the character in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov who says that is Ivan, who is gradually going insane throughout the entire book and clearly does not represent what Dostoevsky himself thinks, even if he finds it a compelling position. But that's because nobody understands Dostoevsky and he's a really tough writer and has a lot going on. Um, likewise, like, he points to Kierkegaard as being one of these major founders of Christian philosophy, or Christian existentialism especially, um, and, he, and he points to Kierkegaard's discussion of Abraham, like, Abraham as, you know, this sort of uh, prototypical figure who is presented with this dilemma beyond the ethical. Um, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, which is something that normally would be ethically hideous, like, nobody kills their own children, that's horrible. Um, and yet, because Abraham is Abraham, and because the person telling him this is God, now ethics are changed. Like, if there is an absolute, you know, source of goodness telling you to do a thing that looks ostensibly bad, doesn't that make it good? Doesn't that mean that you are now transcending what is good? Um, and in Abraham's case, his faith is what sort of gives him the ability to leap over what would normally be ethical according to Kierkegaard's philosophy. Um, so Sartre is keeping all of these thinkers in mind. You can see that he's also drawing from Descartes and from the French philosophes of the 18th century. Um, he's sort of drawing from a lot of different sources here. Um, and that's because Sartre is sort of sitting golden age of existentialism. Like he is sort of one of its most important, um, one of its most like significant and also summary mouthpieces. Um, he has seen a lot come beforehand, and at this point, existentialism is robust enough to articulate in a way that is clear and precise, like he does here. Um, he is willing to talk about it as some, a phenomenon that already exists, and that, you know, has its own beliefs and has its own convictions that are kind of set in stone right now. So this essay is, as a result, a bit unique in comparison to the other ones that we've talked about. Whereas so many of the philosophers that we are approaching sort of become, um, in spite of themselves, representatives of a movement like Aquinas is one of the scholastics, or Descartes is one of the rationalists, or Hume is one of the empiricists, um, 
Sarge knows that he's part of a movement. He has a name for the movement that he is a part of. Um, he is defending the movement here as this pre-existent thing rather than sort of like defining it from the ground up the way that Descartes or Hume or Aquinas or Plato or any of our other philosophers for that matter have done. Um, and this is kind of a 20th century phenomenon that philosophy has suddenly become very self-conscious um, in the past 200 years. Uh, and that includes Nietzsche to some degree as well. Like Nietzsche's sort of doing the flip side of this rather than defending any one philosophical perspective of, or position. Nietzsche is antagonistic to all of the philosophical positions that exist up until that point. Um, he is, in a sense, making the first like steps toward existentialism, but he doesn't know that that's what's coming out of it. Um, he doesn't realize that he's sort of like this, you know, this advance guard for this philosophy that's coming down the pike. Um, but I also kind of want to stress that philosophy is in a really weird position right now across the board. Um, so as much as I stressed last time that like Nietzsche represents the move away from modern philosophy into a postmodern perspective, um, he, as well as Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and a whole bunch of other thinkers, um, possibly up to and including Hegel, but also possibly not because he was kind of his own thing. Um, as much as that's one big move, that's the move into the 20th century for philosophy was a rough one, like perhaps even more rough than Nietzsche would give us credit for. Um, this is where philosophy splits um, and philosophy has not gotten over that split yet. We are split to this day. Um, in the 20th century, philosophy had kind of an identity crisis. Um, like, after Kant set down his really impressive system about, like, reconciling the a priori with the a posteriori, the rationalists and the empiricists, um, making a place for science by guaranteeing that, like, one could use your rationality to investigate and inquire about things in the world, sensible entities, um, science generally, philosophy didn't have a whole heck of a lot of other places to go. Um, what's more, the move by Hegel sort of changed how philosophy even functioned. Um, Hegel went much more in a, like, it's still thoroughly rational, still thoroughly dialectic, but also kind of mystical perspective, looking back at history and sort of tracking the progress of human thought through a parallel examination of history. Like, it's fascinating work, but it kind of doesn't fit with anything that has gone before. Um, and the followers of Hegel, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, etc., very much were questioning these big German systems, the system of Kant on the one hand and the system of Hegel on the other. Um, instead, they were writing these short, punchier-like uh, books. Uh, they were deliberately antagonistic. They were performing a one-sided polemic rather than a double-sided dialectic. Um, they weren't interested in building up these grand edifices of philosophical systems. Instead, they were sort of just seeing what goes, like making these attempts and these random sort of individual essays into what counted as philosophy, testing the waters and not bothering to go farther than that, not and intentionally not building systems. Um, and this is one of the defining characteristics of postmodern philosophy across the board, that there is a fundamental distrust of systems and rationality, like we talked about with Nietzsche. 
But after this fundamental distrust in systems and rationality, philosophy sort of found itself faced with one of two directions that it could find itself in going forward. On the one hand, British philosophers and American philosophers, what are known as the analytic school, thought that the proper mode of philosophy going forward was going to be very systematic, but very much allied with science. Um, philosophy to them was the handmaid of the sciences. She would absolutely govern the sciences and sort of keep them in check, but also investigate the sciences, how we do science, how knowledge is created, um, how language fits into this, and as a result, philosophy for them became very rigid, mathematical, um, very procedural, very methodical, um, and very interested in the sort of business of communication as well as the business of rationality itself. Um, through the work of analytic philosophers like Bertrand Russell or Gottlob Frege or later Wittgenstein, although Wittgenstein's tricksy, um, logic was very much formalized. Logic sort of became this language in its own right. Um, science was very much sort of pinned down, dissected, and understood. Like the procedures of science were formalized in a way that really they hadn't been up until this point. Um, method became something predictable, mathematical, something very strict. Um, but as a consequence, philosophy found itself or at least analytic philosophy, found itself unable to talk about a lot of the things that philosophy historically would talk about. Um, metaphysics, no longer on the table. Um, as Hume suggests, metaphysics is dead. Like, there's nothing left to be said that's trustworthy, in large part because these analytic philosophers were so aware of the tricks that language pulls on us when we sort of stretch it beyond its bounds. So analytic philosophers look like a look at something like the ontological proof of the existence of God, like God is the greatest, most perfect thing that ever can be thought, and they say, well, you're just pulling a language trick here. You're, you're just messing with words. You're not conducting philosophy, you're conducting grammar tricks. Um, and they reject it. And they reject all metaphysics in the same way, as basically just being, like, nonsense conducted by grammar. Um, this is the position of the logical positivists, and ultimately is sort of, like, assumed and adopted by Russell and his contemporaries. Um, but the other trick with analytic philosophy is it kind of failed hard. Like, the initial project of Russell and Whitehead was to sort of, like, smooth out language so it would no longer make these kinds of horrific grammatical mistakes. There would no longer be giant gray areas in the business of speaking um, that would cause us to make, you know, these grievous philosophical errors and assume the existence of God where it doesn't belong. Um, so they sat down to writing this gigantic work, the Principia Mathematica, um, named again after Newton's own Principia Mathematica, where they set out like all the rules of logic systematically from the basic most like rudimentary parts of logic um, like negation all the way up to complex mathematics and calculus um, 
and it flopped. It flopped so hard. Like, they kept banging their heads against this problem of a set that contains itself the way that language frequently can refer to itself. Like, when you say, this sentence is not true, and now you are, you are automatically in a logical paradox, because if the sentence is not true, then it is true, but if it's true, then it's not true. Like, you just go around in circles forever and ever and ever, and Russell couldn't figure this out, and nobody could figure this out, and finally, this mathematician named Girdle proved that no language as robust as the English language or as mathematics can ever escape paradoxes. Not only was the Principia Mathematica a failure, but there is no perfect language. There cannot be. Um, the closest you can ever get is a language so rudimentary that it does not have the sophistication or the power that actual language does. Um, now, analytic philosophy has gone on, like, they do not consider that failure decisive, the way that I've sort of presented it here. Um, they've gone on to critique science, and they have gone on to question language in ways that do not sort of have the ambitiousness of trying to, like, perfect language and totally streamline rationality and logic to the point that no more mistakes can be made. That, they realize, is impossible. Um, but you'll also find, like, a to this day, most colleges, most universities in the States, um, Princeton, Rutgers especially, are heavy-duty analytic schools. Um, they still practice philosophy in this way. They're still more interested in the topics. Um, they're still more interested in mathematics and science than they are in the history of philosophy as we've presented it in this class. Um, they don't think that there's any more relevance to reading Plato or to reading Descartes, or to reading Hume, except insofar as they've contributed to our current understanding of how philosophy works. And if it isn't obvious, I don't consider myself an analytic philosopher. Um, I'm very sympathetic to their method. I think that it's great to have that sort of rigorous perspective in place, especially when compared to their opponents. Um, but in general, I think that they've been defanged. They can no longer talk about the really important stuff that philosophy's been talking about for thousands of years because they're too worried that they're going to say something that's wrong. Um, by contrast, the other school of philosophy, which Sartre uh, is hailing from, is the Continental School, um, named because it follows the continent of Europe. Um, like most French, German, um, Spanish philosophers are all engaged in continental philosophy. And existentialism is very much rooted or like the foundation of continental philosophy. Um, where the analytics are concerned with method, the continentals are concerned with subject matter, with content. Um, where the analytics are engaged primarily in the mathematical and scientific dimensions of philosophy, the continental schools have managed to retain something looking alarmingly like metaphysics. Um, they are absolutely the historians of philosophy. They are the ones who still think that there is great value in reading Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and Hume and all of the philosophers that we've studied in this class. Um, but while the existentialists are still very interested in questions of human like freedom, the human condition, metaphysics and reality and being, um, this is all fair game to the, the Continentals, but at the same time, the Continentals don't have a consistent method. 
um, frequently the Continentals see like any method as being viable. Um, there are tons of philosophers who are engaged in what is normally called phenomenology, following Hegel, where you just sort of like track your experience through a strange or uh, universalized set of like adventures or experiences. Um, I say adventures, but really I'm talking about like waking up in the morning and realizing that you're a person or being born. Um, this is what the what the existentialists are interested in, and this is what continental philosophy generally is interested in. Um, they're sort of more interested in I hesitate to say the emotional, but the experiential dimension of human life. Um, the things that can't be quantified with numbers or with scientific uh, examination. Um, they're, they strive still for universality, um, knowing what it means to be human. And the existentialists especially are engaged in this work. Um, now you'll notice that Sartre cites as well um, the work of Heidegger as being foundational to what the existentialists are doing. And Heidegger is sort of like this quintessential continental philosopher. Um, like he is absolutely, you know, it, it, you will be hard pressed not to find a continental scholar who is working from some, from without a Heideggerian mindset. Um, Heidegger's seminal work, Being in Time, um, examined like the nature of human experience through the lens of death. Um, he recognized that all humans are thrown into this world without any sort of awareness of what they're doing here. Um, and the only thing that unites them all is the fact that they know that they're going to die. Like the defining characteristic of humanness, of the human condition, is that we have no idea what we're doing here and we all know that it's just a matter of time until we're dead. Um, and philosophy as a consequence is geared towards like making sense out of this. Um, and this too is what Sartre is working with. This is sort of his assumption. Um, where Heidegger is being more systematic about it, Sartre is being more observational about it. Um, Heidegger is sort of like using this as the foundation as for his jumping off point, which is to like to understand the entire universe through these perspectives of being and time. And P.S. He also wildly fails and doesn't even manage to complete his book. Like he just gives up after chapter two or part two and like everybody still think is over the moon about this thing. Um, Sartre, on the other hand, has a much less ambitious scope. He is willing to sort of learn from Heidegger without turning it into a systematic philosophy. Because again, the postmoderns are themselves very distrustful of systems. They are more interested in the subject than the object. They are not trying to get to some capital T truth, some capital R reality, something that is the truth about the universe, but rather something that we all experience as true. Um, like, short of being able to talk about what is the case, we can definitely talk about what we feel, um, what unites us in our feeling, and what conditions define us as human beings, as he stresses here. Um, so with that in mind, you'll notice that he's talking about existentialism from a defensive position here. Existentialism is under attack. 
Um, he sees lots of people in his time, like writing in the fifties and sixties, talking about existentialism as like, we talk about nihilism today as being a whole bunch of like terrible people who, you know, have these really weird, janky and vulgar beliefs who are like bad people in their own right. And starts like, no, that's, that's not who we are. Um, you don't understand what existentialism actually is and most of the people you are referring to are not really existentialists the word has gotten so popular that it is gradually lost a lot of its meaning for Sartre um, to the point that like he points to that the fact that there's this gossip columnist who calls himself the existentialist and Sartre's like no that's that's definitely not an existentialist like clearly people don't know what they're talking about um by contrast, Sartre is emphasizing that existentialism is not a pessimistic philosophy, it is an optimistic philosophy, though your mileage may vary as far as whether you're convinced by this. Um, the key thing that I want to stress, um, the key thing that he stresses is on page 1332, he gives us this example um, as far as like what is the difference between existentialism and other philosophies, um, he gives us the example of like a paper cutter. Um, when we make a paper cutter, we intend it to cut paper. We design it with this purpose in mind. Like if I get this fancy new idea for this fancy new um, paper cutter, I you know plot it out. I like sketch out what it's going to look like, how it works, how the different moving pieces function together. I take this blueprint or this idea to a factory and I get this thing manufactured and you get tons and tons of paper cutters all with this very specific intention in mind. Your job is to cut paper. That is your purpose. Um, by contrast, human beings don't have that. Or if we do have it, we don't know that we have it, which is the same to Descartes or to Sartre. Um, he doesn't see a difference there. So you'll notice um, he contrasts this with the understanding of the Enlightenment. Um, the Enlightenment very much emphasized the idea of human nature. What is human nature? The Enlightenment and modern philosophers kept asking. Um, what does that mean? What does that limit human beings to being able to do? Um, and you'll see this all over like modern philosophy. You'll see this in Sir Thomas More where he's talking about utopia and the limits of human nature there or like how human nature can be twisted to accomplish certain things. You'll see it in our constitution and the Declaration of Independence where it says like God or God endowed man with certain inalienable rights including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like this assumes a human nature that is constant across the board we are all united in our character according to these writers and philosophers but Sartre disagrees um, Sartre says nature isn't what makes humans humans condition is what makes humans humans importantly we do not have a nature for Sartre he stresses atheistic existentialism which I represent is more coherent it states that if God does not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence, a being who exists before he can be defined by any concept, and that this being is man, or as Heidegger says, human reality. Um, as he stresses at the, in the first full paragraph on page 1323, man is nothing else but what he makes of himself. Um, and you can boil existentialism down to this principle. Existence precedes essence 
We are thrown into this world, as Heidegger puts it. We have no control over the circumstances, and we are not given a purpose, like the paper cutter. There is no design to it, or again, if there is, we can't know it, um, unless we like define it ourselves, which we'll get into. So we have to figure it out. Um, that's the whole point of existentialism, according to Sartre, and he is you know, drawing this from Hegel or from Heidegger and other thinkers of the time. Um, he is saying that we do not get the advantage of knowing what our purpose is. Instead, we have to figure it out. We have to make it. We have to create purpose for ourselves. And on the one hand, this does sound pessimistic. Like, to the Christian who, you know, sees God as putting man into the world for a specific purpose of worshipping and glorifying God or, you know, accomplishing his ends, like Plato talked about way back in the Euthyphro, yes, this sounds a little bit pessimistic insofar as, like, we don't know what we're here for and we're kind of lost and abandoned here. Um, but for Sartre, he sees this as thoroughly optimistic. Um, we have all the power in this scenario. We decide what our what the meaning of our life is going to be. Um, like we've been kicking around this idea quite a bit in this class. Um, what is the meaning of life? Like Plato asked that question back in the Euthyphro, and Euthyphro had no answer for him. Um, we have been bumping into it along the way. Like frequently, we've kind of had to ask ourselves, like, what are humans doing here? Sartre's answer is. I don't know, you decide. Because who else is going to decide for you? Um, that's the real key here. So if you look at the bottom of that same paragraph on page 1323, like right above the, the bottom most paragraph in the first column, if existence really does precede essence, man is responsible for what he is. Thus, existentialism's first move is to make every man aware of what he is, and to make the full responsibility of his existence rest on him. This is one of the key principles behind existentialism. You cannot, like you are incapable of giving away your purpose-making to somebody else. You have 100% responsibility to decide who you are and also what human existence is. Like, you cannot evade this responsibility. You cannot shirk it. Um, this is frequently tied to what Sartre calls radical freedom. Um, like, we generally understand freedom to be a good thing. Like, we want to be free. We, we have fought wars. We have had revolutions. We have frequently trumpeted from the mountaintops. We are free, and we want to be free, and we will not tolerate anyone who makes us less free. Sarge is like, congratulations, you win. You are all 100% completely free. Bad news, you are also 100% completely responsible. Um, and this is where we get into sort of like the pessimistic language that existentialists use to describe the human condition, even if it is with a sort of pos or positive optimistic bent. Um, so he declares the definitions of these three terms, anguish, forlornness, and despair. Totally an optimistic philosophy, people. I don't know what you're talking about with, you know, anguish, forlornness, and despair being anything less than the most optimistic philosophy you can find. Um, but notice what he says about each of these. 
So at the bottom of the second column on page 1323, he says, first, what is meant by anguish? The existentialists say at once that man is anguish. What that means is this, the man who involves himself and who realizes that he is not only the person he chooses to be, but also a lawmaker who is at the same time choosing all mankind as well as himself, cannot help escape the feeling of his total and deep responsibility. This is the downside of freedom as far as Sartre is concerned. This is the price of freedom. You wanted to be free? Great, you're free. You're 100% completely free. No one can take that freedom away from you. You define what your purpose is. No one gives you that. You cannot shirk your, your freedom. But that means you are responsible 100% for all of your actions. You cannot pass the buck anymore. Um, if existence precedes essence, if humans are radically free, then that means that you are radically free to decide each one of your own actions, and as Nietzsche pointed out, you are therefore 100% responsible as well. Like, Nietzsche didn't like free will. Nietzsche thought that free will was a giant lie made to f make us feel guilty by, you know, religious people, priests, and philosophers who wanted to get a leg up on us. Sartre insists that freedom is the most basic, most fundamental characteristic of who we are. Freedom is very real. It is the most real thing we have. And as a result, we cannot escape it. The connection that he sees is the same one that Nietzsche sees between freedom and responsibility. By being free, we are responsible for each and every one of our actions. Um, and he gives us some of the escapes that we tend to come up with. Um, so, for example, we've got this example of the woman who, like, hears God talking to her on the telephone. And Sartre asks, how do you know that it's God? Like, let's assume that God does directly address you like he did Abraham. Let, you know, he sends an angel to confront you. It's still, even in this case, up to you to decide that it's God talking to you. It's still, even in this situation, up to you to determine whether or not this is an angel or a demon who's communicating to you. Or for that matter, that this is trustworthy. That you're going to take God for granted. Um, this is the point that Sartre is making. Like, whatever, whatever voices you hear, whatever, you know, like, sources you take for granted... Um, if you read the Bible, if you, you know, trust Buddhism, whatever, at the end of the day, it's up to you both to accept what's being presented to you and also to interpret it. Um, so as he says at the bottom of, this, of the second full paragraph in the first column of 1324, if a voice addresses me, it is always for me to decide that this is the angel's voice. If I consider that such an act is a good one, it is I who will, say, who will choose to say that it is good rather than bad. To give you an example, like, people frequently say, you know, especially in Christian circles, you will hear people say, you know, trust the Bible. Like, whatever the Bible says, that is the truth. You should do whatever the Bible says in any circumstance. Sartre would reply, that doesn't help me. Because at the end of the day, I have to decide first to accept the Bible, whether or not I want to accept the Bible. And second, what the Bible is saying in any given circumstances. Um, that's the sort of like fundamental consequence of having this radical 100% freedom. Um, this anguish is knowing that you have this responsibility. 
um, recognizing the fact that there is a huge price for this freedom that you cannot avoid. Um, and what's more, Sartre is insisting here that this freedom has to be universal. Like one of the other things that we frequently say as contemporary Americans is, you know, may you believe what you believe. Like I'm going to do my thing. You're going to do th your thing. If that makes you happy, you do that. I'm going to do my thing. Everyone has their own opinion. Like I'm not going to judge you for having yours. Sartre is like, no, that's nonsense. And that's cowardice. If you really believe what you believe, if you are actually taking your freedom seriously, then you are not just acting in a way that like benefits you or that you think is right or that you think is just. You are declaring with every action you take, I mandate this for all humans everywhere all the time. Um, if you decide to go home and watch Netflix instead of coming to class, or if you decide to blow off listening to my last lecture because you've got better things to do, you are not just doing it because it is convenient for you at this moment, at this time. You are saying, like, loud and clear to anyone listening that you don't think that this is important. You are saying, loud and clear, that it is better to watch Netflix than it is to listen to your philosophy professor. It is better to, you know, pay attention to the things that make you specifically happy in the moment than it is to worry about these sort of esoteric academic ideas. Um, this is not just for you. Like, you cannot sit there and make the caveat, you know, I'm just really tired today. Or, you know, maybe it's just because I enjoy this. Like, you should do what you enjoy. Like, that's not what matters here. And you are being a coward for avoiding the responsibility that you are undertaking by acting. You are making a statement. You are declaring in no uncertain terms that this is the right thing to do in this situation. You are accepting this and you are as a result accepting the responsibility for this. Um, like we frequently talk about, you know, in our culture, we frequently talk about like, what would you do? You know, would you change your behavior in front of like small children or be the person who your dog thinks you are? Um, sort of like provoking you to be a better person than you typically are. Um, this is what Sartre is saying all the time. Like everything that you're choosing, you're mandating. Um, you are setting an example for everyone around you all of the time. There is no privacy. Like as much as there is no God in Sartre's philosophy, he is still acting as though God is watching at all times because his actions all have universal value. They're all mandated. That's what anguish is. It's knowing that you have no privacy. There is no point where your actions are meaningless. All of your actions have universal weight all of the time, and there's no escape from that. Um, just like Nietzsche with his e eternal recurrence, he is basically like pointing the finger at you and saying, are you sure you are doing the best possible thing at all times? And if not, why not? What are you doing? Why can you justify to yourself that it's okay to take today off, that today it doesn't matter, um, that your actions are unimportant? No, your actions are the most important thing. They are the only important thing. They're the only thing that you can control in this world. If you do not take them seriously, then you are not taking anything seriously. Um, then there is no meaning to your life, and you are basically willfully disposing 
of your freedom like it is a worthless thing. Um, is that in fact how you want to behave, he's saying. But this is the other side of it. Like When you get into forlornness, this second term of his, he stresses that this means only that God does not exist and that we have to face all the consequences of this. Um, this is the other side of the coin. Like if anguish is about recognizing the universal application of one's actions, of recognizing that everything that you choose is being chosen for humanity as a whole, that there is no like, I'm just doing it because I want to do it, or I'm just doing it because it doesn't matter who cares. Um, this is the side of it where you cannot flip it over to anyone else. You cannot say the devil made me do it. You cannot say the Bible said so. You cannot say my parents taught me to do it and now I'm stuck doing it. Um, the other side of freedom is what he says in on page 1325, man is condemned to be free. Um, like if you accept the Bible, you do it on your own terms. You do it because you do it and not because, you know, your pastor told you to, or because your parents told you to, or because anyone told you to. Um, if you dis if you like commit a crime, you cannot chalk it up to a bad upbringing or your parents raising you wrong or, you know, anything like that. You are free. You can choose not to do those things. Um, there is nothing in your life forcing you to behave in any specific way. And as a result, like, you can't pass the buck. You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say God made me do it. You can't say that, like, my pastor or my parents or whatever made me do it. At the end of the day, every choice that you make is yours and yours alone. And to illustrate this, he uses the example of his one student. Um, his student is, like, this is back in the 1950s during the occupation of France by the Nazis. Um, and his student is faced with the decision, am I going to keep staying at home with my mother, who is 100% devoted to me, like, my brother and my father have both gone to war and are dead, um, literally I am the only thing holding her back from, like, complete and total despair, or do I join the Free French Forces? Do I fight for the freedom of France? Do I join my comrades and my brothers in arms and try and do something bigger than just me and my family? Um, and he is presented with this dilemma, and there's no ethical system that will give him a solution to this problem. This is what Sartre emphasizes. Like, he can read the Bible until he's blue in the face, and the Bible will have lots of nice things to say about loving your neighbor, and about honoring your father and mother, and about, um, like, doing what is right. And at the end of the day, it's completely unhelpful to this student's situation. Um, is it more a matter of loving one's neighbor to, you know, like, protect your family? Or is it more a matter of loving one's neighbor to not let other people do the hard work of liberating your country for you alone? Um, is it more an honoring of your parents to, you know, protect your mother or and stay by her side? Or should we instead be reading the passage that says um, that, you know, every person is required to leave their father and mother, cleave unto another, to make their own life. Um, this is the problem that all of us face. Um, and what's more, like, Sartre mentions that this person could, you know, go and find advice. They could talk to a priest. He comes to Sartre and asks his opinion. Um, but at the end of the day, like, all of us know the advice we're going to get. 
Um, we choose who we go to for advice because we have already decided that we want to emulate our lives after theirs. Um, as Sartre points out, there are priests who are collaborators, priests who are working with the Nazis, while there are also priests who are resisting, people who are supporting the Free French. And if this young man decides to go to a resistor rather than a collaborator, or a collaborator rather than a resistor, he knows the answer he's going to get. The collaborator is going to tell him to stay at home with his mother. Just, you know, these are bigger ideas than any of us. Like, God doesn't care about the rise and fall of nations. So, you know, you just do you, what you do. You follow your own career. You follow your own family's life. That's way more important. Whereas the resistor would say, yes, stand up and fight for what you believe in. Like, you have to fight in order to, you know, secure a world that is worth living in um, for your parents and for your family. Either way, the student knows what answer he's going to get beforehand, and by Sartre, he also knows what he's going to get beforehand, which is nobody can make this decision for you. That's the point here. Um, anyone who says that they are getting their information from somebody else, that like, I went to my priest and he gave me advice, or I read the Bible and I took what it said seriously, or I follow Buddhism, or I follow, you know, the personal philosophy of Regis Philbin, like, whatever source of information you're getting, it's still at the end of the, of the day a source that you have accepted, that you have decided to follow, that you have decided to interpret into what it means. You can't evade that. You cannot be anything less than free. Um, and to pretend like you're not is cowardice. It is to act, to lie to yourself, to be dishonest to yourself. Um, you are fully responsible for the interpretation, Sartre says. You yourself choose the meaning that these words will have. Um, and to this point, he also gives us the example of the guy who became a Jesuit, like the guy whose life was totally miserable. Um, so on page 1326, the second column, he says, When I was a prisoner, I knew a rather remarkable young man who was a Jesuit. He had entered the Jesuit order in the following way. He had had a number of very bad, bad breaks. In childhood, his father died, leaving him in poverty, and he was a scholarship student at a religious institution where he was constantly made to feel that he was being kept out of charity. Then he failed to get any of the honors and distinctions that children like. Later on, at about 18, he bungled the love affair. Finally, at 22, he failed the military training, a childish enough matter, but it was the last straw. This young fellow might well have felt that he had botched everything. It was a sign of something, but of what? He might have taken refuge in bitterness or despair, but he very wisely looked upon all this as a sign that he was not made for secular triumphs, and that only the triumphs of religion, holiness, and faith were open to him. He saw the hand of God in all this, and so he entered the order. Who can help seeing that he alone decided what the sign meant? Importantly for Sartre, like, yes, there was this horrible series of events and some meaning had to be derived from it, but no one could tell this person what that meaning was except himself. To pretend like there was only one way to interpret these signs is, again, cowardice, foolishness, evasion of the fundamental nature of responsibility. This could just as easily have been a sign that he needed to become a carpenter, that he should have committed suicide. Um, many people have made these sorts of decisions in the past. We decide what the signs mean. We interpret them according to what we want or what we decide to see. And for Sartre, this is a creative business. This is, in fact, the most important business of human beings. 
Um, this is something unavoidable, but it is also something crucial to who we are. Um, we cannot avoid this responsibility, but we also have the opportunity to turn it into something amazing, something beautiful or important or profound. Um, we create meaning in our lives for Sartre. Um, and this act of creation is incredibly important, not just to who we are, but to what human beings become. Um, like, as much as he is loath to look at responsibility to a greater culture as some factor in his decision-making process, at the same time, he recognizes the accomplishments of human beings who have done great things for humanity itself. Great writers, um, great composers, all of these people chose this course of action, created what their life was going to look like, and invented humanity in the process decided what human beings were capable of and could accomplish. Um, now, the last component of his sort of negative terminology is despair. Um, and on page, the bottom of page 1326, second column, he says, as for despair, the term has a very simple meaning. It means that we shall confine ourselves to reckoning only with what depends upon our will or on the ensemble of probabilities which make our action possible. Um, for Sartre, this is an individualistic philosophy. We cannot extend it to interact with or involve anybody else, anything outside of our own power. Will, our will, our freedom, is the single thing that we have control over, and we will not consider anything beyond those things. We will not take some sort of necessity in the way that other people behave, because again, they too are radically, radically free. Um, and the example he gives us is like, I, re or I reply at once that the comrades, the Marxist comrades, are involved with me in a common struggle in the unity of a party or a group in which I can more or less make my weight felt. That is, one whose ranks I am in as a fighter and whose movements I am aware of at every moment. Um, communists have frequently criticized existentialists for being too individualistic. The whole communist agenda is that, like, all the people join this one party, the party is greater than any of the individuals in that cause, um, and therefore, like, you have to trust the communist party to accomplish your goals after you have, after you were dead and gone. Um, in short, you have to completely subject yourself to the will of the party. You do what they tell you because they have your, your best interests in mind. And Sartre's like, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen after I die. I have no idea what you're going to do to me while I'm in it. And I'm definitely not going to trust you 100% for the conduct of how my life is going to go. If I join the Communist Party, I join it freely. I am not obligated by some sort of exterior, you know, force to join and help my fellow laborers. There is no progress of history in the Marxist sense that compels me to behave one way or another. I can work with the Marxists if I believe in what they believe. I can join them and subject myself if I think that that's the best course of action for me and for humanity, but it will never change the fact that I made the decision. Um, and I can only trust you as far as I am inclined to trust you, in, insofar as I decide to trust you. Your goal is not greater than my goal. At best, it is the same as my goal. 
Um, and so Sartre is willing to trust the communists only in so far as he believes that it is probable that they will follow through with what they promise. Because at the end of the day, he died, if he dies, he doesn't know if the communists suddenly become fascists or if the communists give up on their cause altogether. He just has to trust them. He has to trust in the probability. Um, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing regardless of whatever the outcome will be. If joining the communists is a good thing to do, it doesn't matter if the communists succeed or fail, if they fall apart or if they, you know, implode or if they're, they like turn their back on their principles. Sartre was right to do the thing because it was right to do the thing. So in that sense, existentialism isn't concerned with the future. It isn't concerned with the likelihood of things happening or not happening. What makes it right or wrong has nothing to do with its success or failure. What makes it right or wrong is, is it right or wrong? And the only way that you can determine that it's right or wrong is because of what you decide. I choose that this is right, or I choose that this is wrong. And as a consequence, I will do this. I will try and make it happen. I will model my life in a way that everyone should it themselves look at me and say that that is what is the right thing to do. I will present myself as a case study in moral behavior. And if the rest of the world fails to follow me, I did my part. If the rest of the world disagrees and rejects me, I did my part. And if the world accepts me and runs off with it and everything that I tried to achieve comes to pass, I was right that way as well. Um, it doesn't matter. All that matters is what I have control over. My choices, what I choose to do. Everything else is out of your consideration, out of your power, and therefore not worth considering or concerning yourself with. But the other side of this, in addition to like not taking into consideration the things that are outside of your control, the other side to this, to this issue is that you are entirely the sum of your own actions. Not what you think you are, not what you want to be, not what you believe you have the potential to be, but by your actions themselves. Um, like if you were telling yourself that you could be the greatest philosopher who ever lived or the greatest writer who ever lived, the greatest dancer, or the greatest artist or a social media influencer or president of the United States, and you're not that, then that's bullshit. And you need to stop lying to yourself. Um, what Sartre is emphasizing here is that you are a hero for acting heroic. You are a coward for acting cowardly. All that you are is what you have accomplished, and that's it. Um, if you are sitting around saying, you know, I could be the greatest composer who ever lived, I just need, you know, I just went to the wrong school, or I had the wrong parents, or, like, I haven't gotten my big break yet, or whatever, you're lying to yourself. You're sitting at home justifying your failure according to things outside of your control. Whereas your failure is because you have failed. You should be doing the best that you can with what you have at this moment. What you do, in fact, have control over. If it is, in fact, like, important to you to compose music or to, you know, like, perform songs or to write a novel or whatever, then you should be doing that. You should stop listening to this lecture right now and you should do that. And as long as you keep listening to this lecture, you are affirming to me, yourself, and everyone around you that this is the best thing to do at this moment in time. That this is the most profitable use of this moment in time. 
Um, you are not what you think you are. You are what you do. Um, as he puts it, the genius of Racine or of Moliere or of any great playwright of, or of any great writer like Proust is entirely what they have accomplished. Not what they could have done, not what they might have done, not what you know they would have done if something else had been different. Like, that does not matter. The entire value is in their output, what they actually did do. Um, their value as a human being is defined by their actions as a human being, not by any other factor that we cannot appreciate. Um, if you didn't do it, then it does not matter. It is not relevant. Um, so this is very much the existentialist framework that he is presenting here. Um, and he next goes into several objections about this, like philosophical positions opposed to his own, challenges that he has faced from Christians and from otherwise. Um, and the one that I do want to especially focus on here is this idea that he is unable to pass judgment on others. Um, because this one is probably the one that gets most press, like insofar as it is a rejection of existentialism, but if anything, be more because it is what people think existentialism actually believes. Um, this is the one that is the trickiest um, because the existentialists and Sartre especially acknowledges that they are all subjectivists, that they, like Descartes, believe that philosophy begins and ends with I think, therefore I am, um, that basically you cannot get out of your own perspective. Um, this is the foundation on which existentialism is built. That assumption that Sartre made that we have an infant, or that assumption that Descartes made, I will constantly get the two of them confused. Um, that assumption that Descartes made that we have infinite wills, that we can will anything. Like that is the foundation on which all of this existential philosophy is built. Um, and Sartre emphasizes here that it's also like the end point. Um, we are trapped in our own perspective. We can never fully understand what's going on behind the eyes of another human being. Um, we can never get into their cogito. Um, but nonetheless, we have to make judgments. Um, now, the criticism to this is, well, you can't judge. Like, according to your philosophy, there are no values except what you decide. So anyone can decide anything and you existentialists just have to go along with it. So if Bluebeard, who famously, like, murdered all the women that he slept with and then I believe also ate them, I don't remember exactly what the deal was, um, Bluebeard, one of the prototypical serial killers of the early 20th century, is totally justified if he says, I do it because I decided to do it because I decided this was meaningful in my life. And Sartre is kind of forced to throw up his hands and say, eh, yeah, sort of. Um, he is willing to make several caveats. He does emphasize that, like, while this absolute radical freedom is this fundamental principle, and yes, you can choose to deny it, if you deny it, you're being dishonest. If you're okay with that dishonesty, then I can't tell you otherwise, but I can tell you that it is logically incoherent, and that freedom is this necessary thing that governs all of our lives. We cannot evade it, we cannot escape it, we cannot deny it. Um, if you choose to try and escape it or evade it or deny it, then you are being inconsistent and the existentialist is well within his rights to judge on that basis. Um, but importantly too, Sartre is saying, you know, by acting, we are also judging. 
Like, if I determine that, you know, being a fascist is wrong, then anyone who says that being a fascist is right is wrong in my eyes. Um, as much as I want to take the existentialist position and say, you know, freedom is freedom and everyone needs to express their freedom, if I choose to express my freedom in a certain way, I am implicitly judging everyone who does not. And I want to stress this, because for Sartre and for the existentialists, this is the only consistent position to have. And yet we frequently conflate existentialism and this sort of radical subjectivity with the assumption that no values are defensible at all. Um, we frequently conflate things like existentialism with, on the one hand, nihilism, and on the other hand, relativism. And these are the two bugbears of modern society that I want to kind of confront here with the last bit of this last lecture. Um, in part because I hate both of them. Like, I think nihilism is garbage and nonsensical, and I think relativism is garbage and nonsensical. Um, but also because I think that they're internally inconsistent. Um, like, when we talk about nihilism, and again, this is one of those big catch-all terms that is gradually get getting more and more speed, um, in recent memory. Nihilism in the strict sense, in the philosophical sense, much as, you know, Sartre is trying to define existentialism in the strict philosophical sense here, nihilism means belief and value in nothing. Um, and a lot of people think that this is kind of a cool philosophy, that it is cool to just reject all sense of valuation. There is, after all, no sense of value in like logic reduced to its most foundational sense. There is no reason to believe in one ideology versus another. Um, but this is kind of not what nihilism is about. Um, and sort of accepting this position is itself really faulty. Um, like, whether or not you think that one ideology or another is arbitrary, it certainly does not give you the right to reject or condemn all ideologies. Um, like, Sartre is saying here that, you know, if you in fact believe in freedom, then you have to accept the freedom of everyone involved. Um, you cannot just reject people for accepting a position, for accepting, you know, that something is true, for taking an ideological stance. If you are, in fact, a practicing nihilist, you are saying that everyone should be a practicing nihilist, and therefore anyone who is not a nihilist is wrong. You are accepting an ideology, in short. Um, you cannot avoid accepting that ideology. But on the other side, people sort of talk about nihilism in a way that makes me think they don't actually understand what nihilism is. Like, when nihilists say they believe in nothing, then they are rejecting literally all value judgments. They are saying that every value judgment is arbitrary and absurd, and therefore it is best not to make any. There is no good, there is no bad, no one can judge anyone, everything is meaningless, and we're all just, like, dead in the water and just marking time to the grave. Um, which, P.S., is a philosophy that typically very much condones suicide, like the people who were eating the Tide Pods once upon a time were f very much practicing nihilists and, you know, doing it in pretty good earnest, saying that death and life neither had any meaning. Um, but a lot of the sort of art that we associate with nihilism, like I think of Rick and Morty especially, um, Rick and Morty displays nihilism but it also condemns nihilism. 
Um, like, the whole thing with Pickle Rick, and I realized that, like, the people who shout Pickle Rick for a good few years there were mostly, like, just tools. Um, the Pickle Rick episode is actually a hardcore condemnation of nihilism. Um, like, the whole point of that episode is Rick is, like, running through this elaborate series of action movie cliches and, you know, this really exciting adventure, specifically because he doesn't have the emotional maturity to actually go to a therapy session with his family. He is being an asshole. That's the whole point. Um, like, idolizing him is absurd not at all what that episode is suggesting or what dan Harmon is suggesting the whole point of rick and morty like throughout the third season and beyond is that intelligence is not an excuse for being a dick um nihilism this idea that nobody matters that nothing matters that all value is suspended is a really jerk thing to do and really can hurt people. Your actions do have consequences, as Sartre is emphasizing here. Do not try to escape that. And if you do try to escape that, you are a coward. You are dishonest. You are avoiding something that is fundamentally true about human nature. Harmon is an existentialist, not a nihilist. Rick is a nihilist, and he is frequently wrong for being a nihilist, as Harmon presents him. Um, so I want to stress, like, don't become a nihilist, for the love of God. Like, first, if you do think you are a nihilist, know what that means. Know that that means that you are valuing nothing, good or bad. Um, that, like, there is no good or bad from your perspective. But also that that means that you are not in a position to judge anyone, and you are literally saying that there is nothing worthwhile about the world if you are a nihilist. Um, but the other philosophy I want to definitely confront and approach here is relativism. Because this is the one that I find the more insidious of the two. Um, another one that, like, nobody understands, but also is just really kind of bad. Um, and relativism is one that I confront in this class all the time. Like, I've probably already talked about it in one of my earlier lectures and I'm just forgetting. Or I've talked about it in one of our class sessions if we've had those. Or I've responded to you in one of your papers about it. Like, I see students all the time writing that, you know, whatever is true for you is good for you. Like, you know, hey, if somebody believes in God and it's working for them, like, who am I to judge? That's very much a relativistic position. Relativism states that there is nothing capital T true, in the same sense that nihilism says that there is nothing of value. Um, where nihilists say that there is nothing good and that everything is nothing. Relativists are saying that everything is equally valid. There is no capital T truth. Whatever we understand is as close to capital T truth as we can get. There is no ability to communicate with each other and therefore there's no point in like trying to understand each other. Let's just all do our own thing and leave each other alone. Um, and Sartre actually really rejects this as well. Um, in fact, Sartre has a pretty wildly controversial statement here on page 1329, the first full paragraph at the top of the second column. He says, every configuration, even the Chinese, the Indian, or the Negro, can be understood by a Westerner. Can be understood means that by virtue of a situation that he can imagine, a European of 1945 can, in like manner, push himself to his limits and reconstitute within himself the configuration of the Chinese, the Indian, or the African. Every configuration has universality in the sense that every configuration can be understood by every man. 
What Sartre is saying is that the position of you can't understand what I've been through is nonsense. We all have a universal condition. We all understand suffering on some basic level. We all can therefore understand each other on a basic level. And I realize that's a hardcore unpopular position these days. Um, and for that matter, the unpopularity is something we're really sensitive about. Like when people who are rape survivors or who, you know, are black tell us, you cannot understand my pain. You cannot understand what I've been through. What Sartre is basically saying is, yes, I can. Like I can on a very basic fundamental level. Like I understand what suffering is. I understand what alienation is. We have all been alienated at some part in our lives. And while admittedly I cannot understand the level at which you have been alienated, the level at which you have suffered, the level at which you have been hurt, nonetheless I can understand what suffering and hurt actually look like. And like I said, this is a very unpopular decision. Um, this is a very unpopular philosophical position to say that like experience is a universal thing and we all have access to each other's experience. But what I want to stress here is that the alternative is in many ways kind of scarier. Like, do you really want to be in a position where only you can understand what you've been through? Like, where you literally cannot allow somebody else to communicate with you, where you literally cannot be understood by anyone else. Like, don't get me wrong, I recognize that there is, you know, distances between our experience, that anyone who assumes that they understand what it's been to be raped when they have not themselves been raped is conducting an act of presumptuousness. Um, as Wittgenstein famously said you to like a friend of his who was exaggerating in a hospital bed, you can't know what a run-over dog feels like. You just can't. But you can know what it means to be in pain. You can know what it means to suffer. There's a middle ground here, in short. Something between Sartre's position that like, all experience is universally accessible to everyone in this position that there are some things that literally no one can understand. Because as isolating as this idea that like you are alone, like profoundly hardcore alone, may be like the idea that we are all in the same boat is also kind of weird and wrong. Um, real experience lies somewhere between the two. But what I want to stress, and what the relativists are very opposed to, what you are opposed to when you say things like everyone should just believe what they, they themselves believe, you know, whatever you believe is right for you, like, that's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. If there's a God in this world, we all have to deal with him. If there's no God, then the Christians are going to be really disappointed. That's the truth. Um, like, this is a basic law of non-contradiction thing. The same thing cannot be true for one person and untrue for another unless that statement is purely subjective. Um, like, they see blue. Um, if God exists, he, gotta, he exists for everyone. Anytime somebody makes an existential claim, like, do dragons exist? Or is it right to commit murder? This is not, it depends kind of questions. This is... A metaphysical question, a what is the state of the world question. It does not vary from person to person. There is truth in the world. 
And even if you were to deny that we have access to that truth, if you, even if you were going to take an agnostic position like Hume and say that truth is only something that we can partially access, that's a completely different thing from saying that there is no truth, that truth is completely relative, completely subjective, and that we are all locked behind our own eyes, unable to communicate with each other. Um, I have found that communication works. And I have found that the people who need communication the most are the people who are frequently the most withdrawn. But what I want to stress is that if you stop trying to communicate, you will succeed. Like, you will fail to communicate. You will lock yourself in a bubble where no one can talk to you. If, on the other hand, you try to communicate, if you reach out, if you attempt to make yourself heard, people will hear you. Maybe not as well as you'd like, maybe not as much as you would like, but you will be heard. Um, as Sartre is pointing out here, like, even if truth is universal, even if you are making claims that apply to everyone, the emphasis throughout here is that we are all in this together. As much as we may disagree about so many things, violently or otherwise, we have all been afraid of death, we have all suffered, we have all hurt, we have all felt the pain that Hume points to when he denies the existence of God and fears that this world has no governing goodness. We have all been there. So don't, like, when you say that you are separate, that your experience is unique, you are committing an act of some kind of strange pride in doing that. And it is an act that will ultimately work to drive people away. Um, and if that's what you want, go for it. But as Sartre would point out here, that's your call. And you do not have the ability to sort of deny that it is your call. Um, people will be distant from you only insofar as you force themselves to. Do not take that as something that has happened to you. Recognize that, some, that that is something that you are doing. Um, but again, this is some heavy duty stuff. So, and you know, I'm not sure if I'm really getting my point across. Suffice it to say that I have serious misgivings about both the rejection of value and the rejection of truth. Um, nihilism and relativism are not traps that you want to fall into. Um, they will ultimately just like, they will destroy you more than you are making any successful point or truth about the world. Um, like, even at, even to use the sort of hackneyed rejection of relativism, if you are saying that there is no truth, that is itself a truth claim. You are saying, you know, there is no truth is true, um, which is, of course, absurd. Like, either there are universal laws about the world or there aren't. Um, and if you are saying that there are not, then you cannot make that a universal law. Likewise, if you were a nihilist saying that there is no value, that all value is fictional, why believe that? There is no point in believing nihilism over any other philosophy if you in fact believe that is the case. If you are in fact a nihilist, then you should probably just go ahead and become a Christian or something. They tend to, you know, be much more convinced that what they believe is the truth, and they tend to be a lot happier about it. So there's no point in not doing that. Um, nihilism, like relativism, is a self-refuting, self-defeating philosophy. So stay the heck away from it. Um, but the last thing that I sort of want to drive home here, like, again, I said that this would be a short lecture. It wasn't. Um, 
The last thing that I want to drive home is sort of Sartre's answer to the question that we've been dealing with this entire class, namely, what is the nature of God? And weirdly, like, we've seen a lot of different answers from a lot of different philosophers. Plato is talking about how the gods differ in their natures and are therefore untrustworthy, but at the end of the day, Plato wants to conclude that God is good. We've got Aquinas arguing that God is simple and that all sort of like good attributes are embodied by him, but they're also one and the same attribute. We've got Descartes saying that God is perfect, and we've got Hume saying that God is unknown and unknowable. We've got Nietzsche rejecting that God exists at all. But as much as you might think that Sartre would also take that stance, um, that he would also sort of throw in with the hardcore atheists and reject the existence of God altogether, Sartre's approach is actually rather different. Um, as he stresses in the literally the last lines of his essay, um, existential, existentialism isn't so atheistic that it wears itself out showing that God doesn't exist. Rather, it declares that even if God did exist, that would change nothing. There you've got our point of view. Not that we believe that God exists, but we think that the problem of his existence is not the issue. In this sense, existentialism is optimistic, a doctrine of action, and it is plain dishonesty for Christians to make no distinction between their own despair and ours, and then to call us despairing. Despair for Sartre is a positive thing. It's about declaring your freedom and your responsibility to that freedom. But it also does not depend on God. Whether or not God exists is of no consequence to, to Sartre or to existentialists. There are lots of Christian existentialists out there, just as there are atheist existentialists like Sartre and Heidegger. The main difference is what they conclude about God, which is not based on any like serious amount of philosophizing besides their own value judgments. What they're saying is you are free and you have to decide no matter whether God exists or not. Um, at the end of the day, you are going to interpret whether God is good, whether God is trustworthy, where, whether God exists, all of that. You are going to be running it through the filter of your own experience. Nobody else can do that for you. Um, so the stress here, the stress that the existentialists have, the wisdom that they show us, is that we must decide. For us to shirk the like the possibility of value or of truth is to just make a dodge to escape something that is fundamentally ours to do um meaning is something that we make and if we make it that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist the fact that it is relative to each one of us that we have to make it for ourselves does not mean that it is any less valuable or important meaning may be what we make of it but that doesn't mean that it is meaningless it doesn't mean that it is pointless to do that. Um, and I think that, like, as much as the existentialists are themselves just one philosophy that we've studied over the course of the semester, and there are many others to sort of ascribe to and examine and sort of acknowledge, I tend to stress the importance of existentialism because I tend to think that my students have sort of, like accepted a lot of existentialist principles to begin with, but also sort of stretched them out of their original positions. Um, by all means, existentialism is a profoundly compelling philosophy, but it is also one of the few philosophies in our modern age that actually legitimately works, that holds up, that does not just fall into inconsistency and self-destruction. Um, so, you know, by all means, look at many of these other philosophers going forward. Keep this philosophy in mind as you address the problems of your life. 
Think about these ethicists, think about these metaphysicians, think about what your decisions and what your, your actions really mean, what they, how they really matter. Because um, the existentialists recognize that they do, in fact, matter. Um, if anything matters, these things matter. Um, but there's obviously a lot to be said about all of these thinkers. Um, so I hope that you continue with your philosophy. I hope that at the very least you keep this in mind as you go about your business from day to day going forward, as you, you know, get up in the morning, as you go to work, as you go to class, as you vote, and as you, you know, make decisions about your life going forward. Um, I hope that you don't leave them behind. And I hope that you also recognize when people are using these techniques and these tricks against you. Um, when they're trying to persuade you or convince you of one thing or another. I hope that you have these philosophers in your back pocket and you are able to say to them, well, this could also be the case. Or, yes, that's true, but this is also true. Or, you know, yes, that's true, but it needs to be contextualized in order to be understood. Um, the whole point of what we've been doing here is helping you to think adaptively. Helping you to think in a variety of different ways. Helping you to sort of control and guide the way that you think and how you think about the world. Um, that is a valuable skill, and I hope you don't give it up lightly. Um, I hope you keep practicing it for the rest of your academic career and for the rest of your lives. Um, and with that, we're done. Like, that's all I've got for you. That's all, that's all the time we have to talk about philosophy. Um, Feel free to pester me with questions going forward. If you have questions about philosophy or anything else, want to talk about the application, want to talk about the final exam, whatever, keep emailing me. I will totally respond when I get the chance. Um, in the meantime, all I can do is wish you the best. I hope that you take this stuff seriously, and I hope that you take your own lives seriously going forward. Because um, this is serious business. This is the one chance you get. Um, so do it well.